Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure or greedy person, such a person as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore do not be partners with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. This is why it is said, Wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Well, thank you very much for that welcome, everybody. It is uh, wonderful to be here. Trust like me, you've been enjoying the Transformed Living series, and it's uh, great to be continuing with part five today. It's been a great mix of encouragement and challenge, and I hope we get some of that again uh, today. Uh, the Apostle Paul, in the passage at which we arrive here, he it basically encourages us to follow after God's example and walk in love and in light. Uh, the Greek word that's translated as follow after there is the Greek word mimetai, from which we get the English words mime and mimic. In other words, when he tells us to follow after, he doesn't mean in a general sense. He means to mimic or to imitate our Heavenly Father. Um, have you ever noticed that children just naturally will imitate their parents? Um, Sometimes parents wish it weren't so. You hear parents say, don't you, do as I say and not as I do, but it doesn't tend to work. As James Baldwin said, children have never been good at listening to their elders, but they have never failed to imitate them. Um, now, I always knew that this was true, but it's become far more apparent to me since I uh, became a father. We have our uh, little boy Jack, who's 20 months old now, as many of you uh, will know. And um, I think it was a couple of months ago, uh, on a Saturday morning, I'd uh, had a nice long lay-in till about 10 past 6 in the morning um, when I heard uh, Jack banging on his side of his cot bed and saying, chattering away, mummy, daddy, mummy, daddy, and so on. So I got up. I confess to you, I was a little bit grumpy, but then I get in and I see him and I'm all like, oh, come on then. So I take him in uh, and put him in bed between me and Becky. Uh, Becky is my wife, <laughs> by the way. Um, <laughs> That's important for this message, I should say that. Uh, we put him between us, and he just sits there chattering away and so on. Um, and, and then, at one point, um, he, he took off my glasses, and he just punched me as hard as he can in the face. Why? Well, because he's imitating his mother. Uh, <clears throat> no, I'm, I'm only joking. She, uh, she doesn't take my glasses off first. Um, no, okay, I want to make abundantly clear that's not the imitation part, okay? If he's imitating anyone, he didn't get that from our house, it must be nursery or something like that, okay? 
But the imitation comes now. What Becky does, because she doesn't want him hitting Daddy, and Daddy doesn't want him hitting Daddy, so what she does is after he's done this, she'll go, no, we don't hit Daddy. And she goes like this, gentle, gentle on my face. And it works, because now what Jack does, he comes in, he takes off my glasses, he hits me as hard as he can, (laughs) and then afterwards he goes, gentle, gentle, (laughs) gentle. And I, for one, will take that as an improvement. Now, what's my point? My point is we do that because we know it's natural for children to imitate their parents. And that's worth remembering, because walking in love and light, as we're going to see from this passage, is actually a pretty challenging thing to do. But actually, the point is, we can do it, because by the power of the Holy Spirit and by following God's example, we as children are able to imitate him who walked in love love and light, and we can walk in love and light. So we're going to look at three steps, if you like, uh, to help us see how we can walk in love and light as we're encouraged to do here. And the first step is this. Number one, if you're going to walk in love and light, number one, assess your attitude. Could we say that together, please? Assess your attitude. As is often the case with the Apostle Paul, he doesn't just tell us what to do straight away. He tells us why we should do it. Always seems to be his method. He gives you the principle and then the practice. If you like, he gives you some truth on which to shape your attitude, and then we can go about our actions. Um, We we stayed over in a a hotel just for one night over the summer, and in the morning I went down to the hotel swimming pool to have a swim, and I saw one of those signs up on the wall that says, Stop, have you had a shower before entering the pool? And I was quite smug because I was able to answer, yes, I have. I had two, actually. I had one as I was leaving the hotel and one when I came down to the poolside. It's kind of a rude sign, though, isn't it, really? It's kind of saying, like, whoa, 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 stinky. (laughs) Excuse me. Can you go back and make sure you've washed off your body before you dive into that pool? Well, it's kind of like the Apostle Paul's method. He says, particularly if you're a very practical person, he says, whoa, before you start diving into the do's and don'ts, let's take some time to wash off our attitude. Because after all, if we go about our actions with the wrong attitude, it's still the wrong thing. So what should our attitude look like? How is it to be shaped? Well, we can see from the first two verses of chapter 5. That's where he starts, and I want to honour his method uh, by following those. And I'd like us to read this together, because this is going to be our memory verse or verses uh, for the week. Uh, This is actually from the slightly earlier version of the NIV, and it brings out that imitation part. So can we say this together? Be imitators of God, therefore... As dearly loved children and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So as we look at those verses, what does it tell us about what our attitude should look like? The first thing, I believe, is this. We should have an attitude of self-sacrifice. If we look at the verse, what it says here, in the uh, version we just read, that we should live a life of love, Uh, In the the later version, we should walk in love. This word love is the word agape, or comes from the Greek word agape. And it's got a very particular definition. It's a very particular type of love. It's not entirely divorced from a love of attraction or affection, but it doesn't quite mean that. What it means here is a love that says, you come first, not me. It's a love that says, I'm willing to sacrifice myself for you. So that's its definition. So if we're to walk in love then we need to walk with an attitude of self-sacrifice. That's its definition. Here's its outstanding example. Uh, It tells us, 
Just as Christ loved us, that's agapeed us, and gave himself for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was the outstanding example of agape, the outstanding example of what it means to have an attitude of self-sacrifice. So if we're going to walk in love and light, we need to emulate our Father, we need to emulate Jesus Christ and follow their example of walking in love and light by having a self-sacrificial attitude. So how do we do this? Well, we can just look at the relationships we're in and think, who comes first in those relationships? Is it me? Do I have an attitude, if you like, of self-importance? Or is it the other person? Do I have an attitude of self-sacrifice? We could begin by thinking about our relationship with God. Do we come first, or does God come first? And it's so important when we think about this self-sacrifice, it's not just about denying ourselves. Well, it is, but paradoxically, we get so much more when we sacrifice. As Jesus said, didn't he? Those who lose their life will gain it. I was just thinking just the other week, actually, I was um, meant to be leading life group for the evening. I came back I'm in a, uh, from work, a very busy time in my life. I've got extra responsibilities at work. I'd already been out during the week and so on. And to be honest, going out to lead life group at that particular time very much felt like a sacrifice. To be honest, I just wanted to make a hot chocolate, put a onesie on, uh, put YouTube on, watch some Christmas carols and winter scenes. Don't judge me. That's how I like to relax. But I thought, I can't do this. I'm the leader of God, I've got to go out there, I've got to lead the discussion and so on. But it felt like a self-sacrifice. It just so happened that my mother-in-law was down those few days so she could look after Jack, so I had the rare treat of Becky and I being able to go to life group together. And actually, we came away from the life group that evening, I just felt like I was walking on air. I had such a great time together, encouraging, challenging each other, I had such a great time with the Lord, it was just wonderful. And this is what we often find when we have the attitude of self-sacrifice, we find we get so much more back. So who comes first in your relationship with the Lord? Is it you or is it the Lord? And by way of sort of application here, we can notice what uh, the Apostle Paul says in verse 10 of this chapter. He says, it's a lovely little verse, and find out what pleases the Lord. Do you notice what he doesn't say there? He doesn't say, just wait until you find out what God teaches in a particular area, and when that happens, then think about doing it. No, no, he's talking about actually being sacrificial, putting ourselves out, being um, assertive, putting ourselves on the front foot, being proactive, and actually finding out what makes God tick. What can I do to please him? How can I put myself out? How can I do my homework to find out what pleases the Lord? It's a wonderful attitude to have that. Find out what pleases him and then do it, rather than waiting to find out, oops, I've been doing that for years, and it turns out he doesn't like it. So let's be proactive. If I can paraphrase John F. Kennedy, let's think not what your Lord can do for you, but what you can do for your Lord. So that's the first thing. Do we have a self-sacrificial attitude when it comes to our relationship with the Lord? What about friendships? I was thinking about this. I remembered an incident uh, when I was at secondary school. I went to Bourne Grammar School, and I grew up on the mean streets of Bourne. And I remember one day I was going into uh, a park in Bourne, and this guy, who's from the year above me, um, who didn't like me, because I was kind of cheeky, so maybe I deserved it a little bit, but I noticed as I was walking across this park that he started to make a beeline for me. And I realized, actually, he meant me harm, physical harm. Now, if you're thinking this story is a little bit violent for a Sunday morning, I'm not talking knuckle dusters and lead piping here, okay? Uh, I'm talking about, you know, teenagers, it was nuggies and headlocks and maybe a wedgie and things like that, okay? But nonetheless, it was unwelcome attention. And I saw that he was coming, and he meant to cause me harm. But actually, 
I didn't receive any harm. And that's because I had a friend called Teddy, who was also massive. And what Teddy did was at the last minute, just as this guy was coming from him, and I was snapping into my training of screaming and begging, um, <laughs> Teddy jumped in at the last minute. They wrestled around on the ground a little bit. Some people broke it away. And actually, I, I was defended. Now, why did Teddy do that? I'll tell you why. He did it out of love. Now, we were teenage boys, so we did not say that afterwards, okay? <laughs> but that was why he did it. It was agape. It was love. It was him saying, I'm going to have an attitude of self-sacrifice. I'm going to put Tom first. <laughs> so I cannot cry, because if Teddy watches this, I'll never live this down, okay? <laughs> I will put Tom first ahead of me. I'm willing to sacrifice myself, put myself in harm's way for him. Now, I trust... If you're a little bit older like me, that perhaps times aren't quite so violent as they were back then in the 90s. But still, we can put ourselves out for our friends. If we've got a friend going through a tough time, we can say, right, they're going through harm right now. I'm going to put myself out. I'm going to sacrifice for them. I'm not going to wait and just be available for them. I'm going to find out what pleases them. I'm going to be proactive, get on the front foot and say, what can I do for them to help them out? How can I have an attitude of self-sacrifice when it comes to my friends? Or perhaps we could consider the marriage relationship. Who comes first in your marriage? I'd hope for all of us it's the Lord, but who comes after that? Is it you or is it your spouse? Uh, if you want to have a, a horrible marriage, it's a fairly easy to achieve. All you have to do is concentrate on your own needs and on your spouse's faults. Now, you know, do that for a few months, a few years, you'll have a terrible marriage. But if we reverse that, if actually we can be self-sacrificial in our attitude, and actually we can focus perhaps on sorting out our own faults so we're less irritating to live with, and we can put the needs of our spouse first, then we'll be walking in love and in light. We'll be following Christ and the Father's example. So that's the first thing. We ought to have an attitude of self-sacrifice. But the other thing it shows us is this. We ought to have an attitude of gratitude. See, Jesus is not here just a great example of sacrifice. He's not just a great example to follow. His sacrifice is the foundation on which we stand. See, Apostle Paul is pointing us to something here and not just saying, follow that as some great example in the abstract. No, that's the very reason we still exist. That's the very reason we are not dead in our sins right now. Because Jesus Christ went to the cross, died in our place, and made a way for us. And so the whole of our Christian life, in fact, most theologians and pastors, including our very own senior pastor, Dave Smith, he would say the number one motivation for Christian growth in the Christian life is gratitude. So we have to meditate on what Jesus did for us, his sacrifice, recognize what we got from that. And therefore, we ought to be going around not with an attitude of self-entitlement, but rather with an attitude of gratitude. And this changes absolutely everything. If I think down to just sort of my everyday life when I go to work, if I think to myself, not I'm entitled to this job, I'm entitled to promotions, I'm entitled to have everybody notice how well I'm doing and so on. If I keep that up, I'm going to be miserable. But if I realize actually, I don't really deserve that job, it was given to me by the Lord. I don't even deserve the body that I've got right now. That was created for me by the Lord. I don't deserve the very next breath I'm taking. That breath is given to me by the Lord. It changes absolutely everything we think about. And we go around not with an attitude of entitlement, but rather an attitude of gratitude. Amen. And so for all of us, if we're to walk in love and light, we have to begin by assessing our attitude. We have to do what you call in business a gap analysis. Okay? So if your attitude is, is down here, and your attitude ought to be here, 
an attitude of, of self-sacrifice, an attitude of gratitude? What can we do to close the gap? I'll say one thing we can do, very practically, is we can look at this memory verse for the week. That's what we've just looked at to learn that we should have an attitude of self-sacrifice and an attitude of gratitude. So take that memory verse. Don't just remember it or repeat it to yourself, but meditate on it as you do. And what you'll find is just doing that alone from the power in the word, what you'll find is that will shape your attitude. That then becomes the fertile soil in which the actions we're going to look at in a moment will grow. So if we're to walk in love and light, the first thing we need to do is that, to assess our attitude. The second thing is this, and again, can we say this together? Protect your purity. Can we say that together? Protect your purity. It might seem strange that this talk of sexual immorality, etc., that comes in all of a sudden now, uh, you know, just after Paul's been talking about walking in love and light, but it shouldn't be strange, actually. We shouldn't not expect to see it here. See, he's just been talking about walking in self-sacrificial love, and now he's encouraging us to stay away from self-indulgent lust. And so he says here in Ephesians 5 and verse 3, but among you there must not even be a hint, be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. So the first thing he tells us to avoid there, sexual immorality, that comes from the Greek word porneia, from which we get pornography. You couple that together with the other word translated as immorality. And while it has a wider scope, basically what this does is exclude any kind of sexual activity outside of marriage. That's what he's saying, don't do that. And actually the third word is kind of tipping its hat to marriage as well. It says greed, and yeah, of course, it uh, is encompassing all forms of greed. But in the older versions, you'll notice it's translating covet. covet. And it would certainly seem to invoke the commandment not to covet somebody else's wife. You know, don't be greedy for somebody else's spouse. So in other words, what he's saying here, in the negative sense of don't do this, he's basically saying, keep sex for marriage. Now, I'm fully aware that not everyone in this room is a Christian. And I'm fully aware that this is not the most popular teaching within Christianity. The idea that you're supposed to save sex until marriage. It's not like most people come and they say, well, I enjoyed it. You know, I, I wasn't so keen on the forgiveness element and loving each other, but I like the idea that you're cutting back on sex. So, you know, that's great. Mostly, people don't say that when they come. Normally, this is unpopular. People think, why is that necessary? Yeah, perhaps people can understand that uh, adultery and pornography and things like that might be immoral, but why, can't, why do we have to wait until marriage? I felt those kind of things, actually. I remember when I first came to Kingsgate and when I first heard this kind of teaching, I remember thinking, it's a bit extreme, a bit old-fashioned. More than that, I remember thinking, this is impossible. I was 25 years old at the time. I'd not lived, why would I, have lived by the uh, Christian ethic of uh, sexual morality. And I just remember thinking, this, this can't be possible. How can anyone do this? And actually, do you know what? I think I was absolutely right. I don't think without the Holy Spirit inside you, you can live like this. But the second thing I thought when I heard these kind of talks and about uh, saving sex till marriage, etc., was I thought, well, hang on a minute, I haven't lived this way, so what am I supposed to feel when we're talking about this? You know, am I just supposed to feel like I'm damaged goods? But something I've learned since is this, is that actually purity is given to us by the Lord. And at any time we want, we can have that purity restored. Just let me give you an example. Now, <clears throat> one of the criticisms of this idea of saving yourself until uh, marriage, one of the biggest criticisms is, why is God so restrictive? 
Why is it that God hates sex so much that he, he just keeps it so sort of uh, secured and locked up and restricted to people? Actually, it's not like that at all. God is the author of sex. He knows that it's good. He also knows that it's incredibly powerful, and that, that's why he created it. Not just to bring forth children in the world, but also to bring a unique and special bond between a man and a woman in marriage. But because he knows it's so powerful and so precious, he knows it needs protecting. See, I remember years ago, when I was about 10 years old, I think, we moved house from Stamford to the aforementioned Bourne. And I uh, helped out with the house move. I'm pretty sure it was probably a bit of a token help out because I was only 10 years old. But I remember at the time thinking about how dependent on what you were packing, it, different uh, things that you were packing needed different amounts of protection. You know? So for example, my comprehensive cuddly toy collection at the time, you could just grab that stuff and chuck it in the lorry. That wasn't really going to get damaged. If it was cutlery and plates and things like that, it probably needed wrapping up in paper or bubble wrap and then being put in a box and sellotaped up and so on. But I remember in particular, there was one very precious item that we had in the house that needed moving, and that was something that had been given to my mum and dad as a wedding present. It was a set of uh, crystal glasses, okay, like uh, champagne flutes or something like that. Uh, and these had their very own special uh, carry case. So you'd open it up, it was a white thing, I can still kind of see it, it had a velvet inside, and each glass had a, a separate little fix where it, it was held together. And then you close the whole thing and you put the latches on and you could carry it away in this special carry case. Now, why did it have that? Why did those glasses have that? Well, because they were precious. They needed a special carry case so they wouldn't get damaged. If they get damaged, they were no longer uh, fit for what they were meant to do. What's more, if a glass gets damaged, it can do you damage as well. So they had to be put in this special carry case to protect them because they were so precious. In exactly the same way, the gift of sex is such a precious thing that the Lord has created its very own carry case for it. And that carry case is marriage. He wants us to keep it so that it won't uh, be harmed and that it won't cause harm to other people. But I remember coming along and thinking about, if I can put it like this, hang on a minute, my glasses are already damaged. <laughs> Not these glasses, my champagne glasses, if you like. But the point is this. It's not just a one-chance deal. Yes, if your glasses are not damaged, then keep them undamaged. Let's protect them. But if we've done something to damage our purity, we can have it restored. Just like with those glasses. What would I do if the glasses got damaged? I'd tell my mum and dad, and we'd go along together. We'd find some specialist, and they would restore the glasses. In the same way, if we've lost or damaged in some way our sexual purity, what do we do? We don't take our mum and dad. Okay, <laughs> That would be weird. But what we do is we go along to the person who can preserve our sexual purity. And who is the person that can preserve our sexual purity? It's Jesus Christ. We go along to him and through repentance and faith we say, Lord, I've messed up on this. I've not protected my purity. I've not preserved it. Put it right. I'm sorry for that. And what will he do? He'll give you back your purity. And so I want to say this before I say anything else. If there's any shame or guilt or any dark feelings or anything like that or heaviness coming on the room right now, I want to declare in Jesus' name that is not coming from the Lord, it's not coming from the Spirit, and I hope it takes me weeks to prepare these things. I don't do it to make anyone feel bad. I hope none of it's coming from me. I'd say that's coming from the enemy. And we need to shut that stuff out. We can all of us have our purity restored. Our job after that is to keep our purity protected. Yeah. 
what we don't want to do is end up in this constant cycle where we uh, damage our purity and then get it restored and damage it. I know in some sense we'll always do that because we're not going to be 100% perfect in this. But we want to stay out of that cycle. And once our purity is restored, we just want to protect it. So how do we protect our purity in this day and age in a culture which is a million miles, really, from the Christian sexual ethic? Well, I believe the clue, as so many times, is actually in the verse itself. The Apostle Paul here says this. He says, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality. I don't think that's just a hard command to follow. I think, actually, that's helpful advice. See, most of us don't fall into serious sexual immorality just because we get up in the morning and think, I will act in a grossly indecent way. Normally what happens is we get there by degrees. We slip into things by accident. We let a hint of it creep in, and then things get even worse. And so what the Apostle Paul, I believe, is giving us, important advice to say, actually, this stuff is dangerous. Stay well away from it. Did you notice in the reading? There are actually very serious warnings attached to people who live in the darkness, in this constant type of behavior. That doesn't mean, by the way, you're in danger if you occasionally slip up and come back through repentance. But for those who live in this kind of stuff, in darkness, there are serious warnings attached. So let's take it seriously. Let's protect our purity and let there not even be a hint of it about us, and not even a hint of immorality. Um, there's a, a field near my house. I just want you to imagine for a moment that they find some radioactive material in that field. Okay? It's all sort of green and glowing and it's interesting and tempting and so on, but it would also do you an enormous amount of damage if you were to get near it. And the environment agency come out and they decide that they can't move it at the moment, so they put around it a protective tent. Okay? So they put that tent on there, it's a radiation curtain, so you should be safer if you stay outside of the tent, but you're going to be in great danger if you get inside of that tent. And then, just for extra safety, they measure out a 100-yard perimeter around, and they build a fence there, and they put a sign on the fence saying, do not enter, it's radioactive, and put barbed wire along the top. Okay? I'm not sure scientifically if any of this works. If you work for the Environment Agency, I don't need to know. <laughs> I love you, but it's just an example. Okay? But what would you do if you walked through that field and you came across that fence and that tent and you could see the green glow coming from inside the tent? What should you do? I'll tell you what you should do. You should not let even a hint of radiation get near you. You should just keep on walking. I'll tell you what you shouldn't do. You shouldn't stop, have a look, think, oh, that looks all intriguing, and climb up and put your nose to the fence. And you certainly shouldn't climb over the fence. There's at least three reasons why you shouldn't climb over that fence. Number one, it's wrong already. Yes, you're not in the most dangerous part, the radiation zone, but you're already breaking the law, if you like, because it says, do not uh, trespass on that sign. Do not enter. And if that wasn't enough, the barbed wire should have been a bit of a clue. So that's the first thing. It's already the wrong thing to do. Secondly, the fence is there for a reason. Presumably, they've contained the radioactive part to a degree, but if the fence was measured out to that point, perhaps you're already doing yourself damage simply by climbing over the fence and being in that zone. The third reason is this. If you were tempted enough, if the temptation to climb over the fence was too much to overcome, what makes you think you won't be more tempted to try and get inside the tent? Now, of course, I'm not really talking about radioactive material. What I'm saying is this. Sexual immorality is radioactive. It will do you a lot of harm. That radioactive material for you might stand for adultery or perhaps even the person that you're attracted to who's not your spouse. How should you deal with that situation? 
You should let not a hint of that adultery get near you. You should keep on walking. What you shouldn't do is climb over the fence. I remember a, a, a chap I knew, we were out in a nightclub one time. Uh, he'd got married, and before that, he'd been a bit of a, a ladies' man. And he said to me, I don't want to cheat on my wife, but what I do want to do is I want to find a girl, and I want to flirt with her right up until the point when I would cheat, and then stop. In other words, what he was saying is, I kind of, you know, I miss the chase. But I'll tell you what he was really saying. He was saying, I want to climb over the fence. It's already wrong to flirt with somebody who's not your spouse. It's already doing him damage if he was up to that. And the third thing, what makes him think if the temptation to flirt was too much to overcome, that he'll be able to overcome the temptation if the young lady in question were to respond and want to take it further? Now, what we need to do if we're going to beat this stuff, again, I don't think many people wake up in the morning and think, I will commit adultery. It comes in when we just allow a little hint of it into our lives. So let's not climb over the fence. Perhaps for you, the radioactive thing is pornography. Well, how do we stay away from that stuff? We don't let a hint of it near us. We don't climb over the fence. We put barriers around it. We protect ourselves from getting into the radiation zone. It might be that perhaps you're doing well with pornography. Perhaps you've, you've overcome and you're protecting your purity now and you've been doing well with it for uh, maybe weeks, maybe months, maybe years. And then you're going to bed at night, and you think, I might just check my emails before I go to bed. I might be OK for some people. For other people, just that little act there might be climbing over the fence. It's late at night. There may be pop-ups that come up that are suggestive. Sex sells, right? We need to protect ourselves from those kind of things. Perhaps climbing over the fence for you is watching TV programs. I'm convinced some of the kind of um, older preachers, Spurgeon and Whitfield and Wesley and people like that, if they came into our time, through a time machine right now, they look at a lot of the television that we watch and say, but that is pornography. That is sexual immorality. Some of watching those shows alone says, do not be partners with them, it said before. Some of just watching those things alone is already climbing over the fence. Or perhaps you're a young courting couple, or maybe not so young. You might be courting, saving yourself for marriage. You're not thinking, you know, we want to uh, sleep together before we're married. But perhaps you get together um, there's no one else in the house that you're in. There's no accountability. No one knows you together. You know, you're snuggling together, watching a movie. You know, it's a nice romantic Jennifer Aniston rom-com or something like that. Is that wrong? In and of itself, maybe. I'm not sure about the Jennifer Aniston thing, maybe. But uh, is it wrong? Well, it might be. It might be climbing over the fence. And listen, that thing is, is difficult. You know, I think in our day and age, kind of waiting until you're married is difficult. I mean, you know, spare a thought for my wife, Becky. She had to resist me for all that time. <laughs> I don't know why that's funny. It was a genuine challenge for her. <laughs> but the point is this. We don't want to climb over that fence. Put, put things in place. Stay back. Uh, and if you've gone too far with any of this stuff, you know, if you're already in the radi radiation zone, maybe you're right into, um, uh, your, uh, what's the word, addicted to pornography, Maybe you've gone too far as a courting couple. Maybe some of those conversations with that person who's not your spouse have gone too far. What should you do? Come back. <laughs> Get out of the darkness. Come into the light and hop back over that fence and run away into the sunlight. The Apostle Paul says, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. Let's not spend any more time in the darkness. Let's not have a hint of sexual immorality about us. Let's get out of that darkness and into the light. 
For some of you who are really challenged by this stuff right now, that might mean, quite literally, bringing it from the darkness into the light. In other words, where the devil loves it, where it's dark and secretive and no one knows, take it out of that and put it into the light. That might mean bringing it into God's light, just confessing it to him. It might mean confessing it to a friend. You've got to pick that friend wisely, but get accountability. Take this stuff seriously. Bring it from the darkness to the light, and what we'll find is we can um, restore our purity, and then we can go on protecting our purity. So that's the second thing if we're to walk in love and in light, is protect your purity. And the third thing, and more briefly, is this. Number three, watch your words. Again, can we say that together, please? Watch your words. This is more brief. We looked at this last week, but perhaps the fact that it's a repetition is the Lord putting his finger on some things. But the Apostle Paul now goes from saying, I'm not just concerned about you having mastery over your body. I'm concerned about you having mastery over one particular part of your body, your tongue. It's a dangerous thing, your tongue, isn't it? It's a great tool. We can use it for good, but we can use it for bad as well. And the Apostle Paul is saying, if you're going to walk in love and light, you need to have control over your tongue. And again, this is impossible without the Holy Spirit. And actually, only for for the perfect ones among us can we have control all the time. But we can certainly do better. We can have increasing control. You know, I might have been sitting through the second point there thinking, I'm doing well with sexual purity. Well, keep protecting it. But how well are you doing with watching your words? This can actually be so much more challenging. The Apostle Paul says this to us, nor should there be obscenity. That doesn't just mean speaking about obscenity, it means engaging in it as well. But I think in context here, he's homing in on you know, filthy talk and saying things. We've already said sex is a sacred gift from God. Let's not sully it with obscene and filthy words. And then he says foolish talk or coarse joking. Uh, the, the Greek word translated foolish talk there is actually a Greek word from which we get the English word moronic. <laughs> in other words, it means kind of any low-level tittle-tattle but it also encourages that kind of more base kind of sexual innuendo. You, know, you get people in the office, don't you, that can kind of turn anything into a sexual innuendo. So there's no place for that as Christians. The third one here, the uh, coarse joking, it basically means exactly as it sounds, any kind of coarse or crude joking. But that particular word could have just meant wittiness. But it had a neg- negative connotation that kind of meant a wittiness that dishonors the person you're being witty about. In other words, it's, it's kind of friendly banter and joking and taking the mickey out of your mates, but when it goes too far. And let's face it, we, we don't want to get rid of witty banter, banter and taking the mick out of each other. It's good fun. It can even be a way of showing affection. But we all know there can be times when it goes a little bit too far and we end up hurting that person. I'll give you an illustration of how you can know when it goes too far. Uh, last Sunday, during the notices... I am just poking fun at the fact that Manchester City had lost to Barcelona 4-0 during the week. I made a little joke about it at the expense of our esteemed senior pastor, Dave Smith. Now, that is an example of just us having a little bit of fun. Uh, Later on that day, I was regretting making that joke because Man United were 3-0 down to Chelsea. Uh, And I got a text message from that same esteemed senior pastor, Dave Smith, It didn't even have any words in. It just had three little pictures of footballs, okay? That is an example of going too far, okay? (laughs) So I said to Becky, he didn't text me when my son was born, but he does when Chelsea are 3-0 up at Man United. (laughs) Of course, I'm joking, but there's, there's actually something really quite challenging in this. A few years ago, I went out with some friends... And we had, uh, a mutual friend was, was a girl that I'd been to school with. 
I hadn't seen her for a few years, and it's nice to catch up with her. I'll, I'll call her Sally. That's not her name, but we chatted, and you know, it was nice to see her again. And then we went out, all of us again, a couple of weeks later. And in between, somebody had said, oh, Sally said you used to bully her at school. It's kind of funny that you get on now. I said, what? I used to bully her at all. I mean, I wasn't a Christian at school. I'm not perfect now. I wasn't perfect then, but I wasn't a bully. In fact, I was totally against bullying. I thought, why, why is she saying this? And so while we were out, I just sort of, you know, collared her and, and said, like, for some reason, they, they seem to think I bullied you at school. Why did they? She went, oh, okay, well, not, not bullying, maybe, but just kind of like sarcastic comments, you know, just kind of cutting things and so on. And I thought, to be honest with you, I'd been giving her the great benefit of my wonderful wit. <laughs> I didn't realize that actually I was hurting her feelings to the point where she could even describe it as bullying. And I learned a valuable lesson when she said that, that actually our words have power. And it's a lesson I was to learn is, is in the Bible. It says the power of life and death are in the tongue. In other words, we have a decision to make. Are we going to use our words to bring light? So do they come from a place of light to a place of light? Or are we going to bring them to bring, use them to bring darkness? Are we going to cut people down or build them up? Are we going to speak well of things like purity and so on? Or are we going to bring in filthy language? It's challenging stuff, this, but the Apostle Paul gives a, a practical way that we can apply this teaching. He says, rather than those things, rather than those words of darkness, bring words of light by doing what? Giving thanksgiving. In other words, we're coming full circle. We started by looking at having an attitude of gratitude to the Lord. Now what he's saying is, if you've pondered on that, if your attitude has been shaped so that it is an attitude of gratitude, and of the overflow of your heart, the mouth will speak. So what will happen that attitude will just come out of your lips and you will be grateful. You will give thanks for what Jesus has done for you. And I want to end with this. What is it then that Jesus has done for us that should make us so thankful? Well, let me go back to the illustration of my mate Teddy sticking up for me. See, what was happening on that particular day when I crossed the park and that guy was coming towards me, that guy meant me harm. And you could argue I deserved it because I was cheeky. That's why he wanted to cause me harm. But rather than get, if you like, the beating that I deserved, what happened was my mate Teddy jumped in as my substitute in my place. He stood in the way for me. He took the beating that was rightfully mine. <laughs> if Teddy's listening to this, he didn't get beaten up. He'll, be <laughs> he'll want me to say. But he was my substitute. And so what happened to me? I came away unharmed, unscathed. Why? Because in an act of love, he put himself in harm's way for me. And that is what Jesus has done for us. Through our own actions, we had brought upon ourselves the wrath of God, the righteous anger of God for the sins that we've committed. But if we put our trust in Jesus, if we uh, sort of pin our flag to him, then what does he do? He stands in the way and he takes upon himself the punishment that we deserve so that we don't have to take that punishment. And I want to say, particularly if Teddy's listening, uh, Teddy is not Jesus, okay? Uh, there is a big difference, and that is that Jesus is entirely perfect. And so not only did he take away the punishment that we might receive, but he also gives us his perfect account. So that if we turn from our sin and put our faith in Jesus, because of what happened on the cross, because he went there as our substitute, our sins are washed away and we are counted righteous in God. And if that isn't something to give thanks for, I don't know what is. Can we pray? Heavenly Father, I thank you that you love us. 
I thank you that you demonstrated your love, your agape for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I thank you that as such, we can follow your example, have an attitude of self-sacrifice, an attitude of gratitude. Will you help us with that, Lord? And also, by the power of your Holy Spirit, help us to follow your example, to protect our purity and to watch our words. And we ask these things in the mighty name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.